Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 2. It is April 28th, 2007, and this week our guest is Dr. Michael Sala, one of the pioneers of the exopolitical movement. We've talked about exopolitics a lot on the program, and it's always good to get the word from someone who is near the top of the heap, and you can't get much further towards the top as far as the exopolitical movement goes than Dr. Michael Sala. We go about an hour here discussing exopolitics, what it is, what the goals of exopolitics are. We're going to talk about that tenuous and sometimes hostile relationship between exopolitics and ufology. He's going to respond to the critics of exopolitics. I'm going to throw some of the criticisms we hear about exopolitics at him, and he gives us his take on those criticisms. We're also going to talk about one of his latest pieces at exopolitics.org, and that is regarding 9-11, what made him get interested in 9-11, and how does that tie into exopolitics. We're going to get his take on the Fife-Symington-Phoenix Light story that broke about a month ago, and we're going to find out his thoughts on the recent release of French UFO documents. Plus, of course, tons and tons more. We really run the gamut of ufological exopolitical material and definitely a lot of food for thought contained herein. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Michael Sala, let me give you a little bit of background on him. Dr. Michael Sala is a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the scholarly study of the main actors, institutions, and processes associated with an extraterrestrial presence that is not acknowledged to the general public, elected officials, or the mass media. His interest in exopolitics evolved out of his investigation of the sources of international conflict and its relationship with the undisclosed extraterrestrial presence. His groundbreaking book, Exopolitics, Political Implications of the Extraterrestrial Presence, presents the first scholarly framework for understanding the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. Dr. Sell is an internationally recognized scholar in international politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy. He has also authored more than 70 articles, chapters, and book reviews on peace, ethnic conflict, and conflict resolution. He has held academic appointments in the School of International Service and the Center for Global Peace at American University in Washington, D.C., the Department of Political Science at Australian National University in Canberra, Australia, and the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He has a Ph.D. in Government from the University of Queensland, Australia, and an M.A. in Philosophy from the University of Melbourne, Australia. He has conducted research and fieldwork in the ethnic conflicts in East Timor, Kosovo, Macedonia, and Sri Lanka, and organized peacemaking initiatives involving mid- to high-level participants in these conflicts. His website is www.exopolitics.org, E-X-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S.org. Without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on April 9th, 2007. Dr. Michael Sala talking about exopolitics on Banal of America Audio, Season 2. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. This week, our guest is someone who appeared on the show way back when for the ex-conference sessions, back when I was just really starting to do interviews. And now that we're doing more long-form style, and it's been quite a while since I talked to him, two years almost, with the exception of a brief discussion at the UFO Crash Retrieval Conference. I'm really excited about picking his brain for a, a long version and happy to have him part of the Banal of America Audio season-style interviews. He is a big mover and shaker in the exopolitics movement, one of the founders of the exopolitics movement. He is Dr. Michael Sala. He's back here on Banal of America Audio. Dr. Michael Sala, welcome back to the show. Hi, Tim. Thanks for having me back. 
And, of course, you can find out more information on Michael Sala at the website, exopolitics.org. That's the main website there, the mothership. Michael, for the people who are uh, new to the whole thing and aren't familiar with what exopolitics is, let's uh, let's give them a little background, sort of bring them up to speed so, so they can jump into the conversation with us. Give them uh, some background on what is exopolitics. Well, but the simplest way of describing it is basically it's the political implications of the extraterrestrial presence. We know there's a lot of data out there that extraterrestrials are visiting us, UFOs are real, and they're doing all sorts of things. And people have been spending most of the time over the last uh, 50 years since this phenomenon first appeared in the public consciousness, really trying to substantiate that uh, this is real. Well, I mean, basically, exopolitics moves beyond that question of, well, is it real? Is it imagination? People making it up, you know, all of those sorts of issues to looking at the political implications of it all. What, is, what does it mean for our political institutions, the processes that uh, are used to govern vast amounts of uh, resources in all governments and um, the movement of finances, the release of technologies, uh, the, the role it plays in, say, uh, health policies, uh, energy, um, religion. So all of these sorts of issues that really need to be looked at if we're accepting that the data on extraterrestrials is reliable enough, then we need to start asking these process questions. What does it all mean for our um, political system? And uh what are the long-range goals of the exopolitical movement? What are you going for in, in the big picture here? What, what's your long-term goal? Well, essentially, for me personally, I mean, this is really about making the study of extraterrestrials a, a mainstream scholarly uh, venture. I mean, rather than kind of doing the uh, piecing together or trying to show that this is a real phenomenon, uh, things that involve people uh, from kind of diverse backgrounds, who are able to take photographs of things happening in the sky or things happening on the ground. I mean, we need to really look at how we can present all of this incredible data because this is the thing that just overwhelms overwhelms anyone who first gets involved. It's just a massive amount of data. Just incredible just how much is there, how much is kind of buried beneath these kind of initial questions people have like, well, is it real and who's written about it? And once you actually start to do the research, you realize just how vast this field is. It covers so many areas. Yeah. So what I want to do is really bring some kind of scholarly cohesion and clarity into the whole thing. One of the big things about the exopolitical movement is it draws in a lot of the people in ufology, obviously, but also there's a lot of factioning that goes on in ufology. There's a lot of people who sort of are anti-exopolitics for, for one reason or another. Um, how do you how do you foresee uh, the exopolitical movement overcoming that sort of factioning within ufology that's been there before the exopolitical movement came along? Well, I mean, the problem with the whole UFO movement was that it was really based on the wrong premises. It began with the idea that the UFO phenomenon is a physical uh, problem that needs to be examined using the physical sciences. In other words, you know, you see a light up in the sky and you say, well, is it real or is it uh, a fake? Or is, it, is there some normal explanation for this? And so you basically assemble a whole crew of uh, physicists, astronomers, meteorologists, uh, chemists, uh, anyone with physical uh, science background to look at the data and say yay or nay, that this is real, it's not real. And, and, and so that's been the approach and it continues to be that way for a lot of mainstream UFO researchers who want to make this a kind of physical um, science uh, akin to physics, meteorology, 
um, astronomy and so forth. The problem is, though, that it never was a purely physical phenomenon. I mean, what we have is a political phenomenon that, in other words, there is more than credible data that from the very beginning, the people in the national security system understood quite clearly what this phenomenon was, and they made the decision to cover it up. Well, a cover-up is a political problem. It's a political process. It has nothing to do with natural sciences and methodologies scientists use to determine whether something is real or not. It is all about covering up an event that national security people, for various reasons, decided to not release to the general public. So basically, exopolitics grows out of that perspective that what we have here is a national security issue and a political issue, not just a issue belonging to the physical sciences. Yeah. And that's really the, the big dividing uh, question here between the uh, ufologists and the exopolitics uh, researchers. And what do you say to the, the people who are like the critics of the exopolitics who sort of say things like, um, you know, been there, done that with the activism and it, it didn't work, you know, in the 60s or whatever for the NICAP people, so it, it's not going to happen now. Or, or you know, nitpick the witnesses where they pick out, you know, one or two of the vast amount of exopolitical witnesses and say, you know, have all these problems with a couple of witnesses and then throw out the baby with the bathwater, if you will, on all these these whistleblowers. Um, what do you say to those to those sort of critics of the exopolitical movement? Do you have a response to that sort of uh, critique? Well, I mean, it's really where you put the emphasis. I mean, if you're going to put the emphasis on questionable policies like having uh, demonstrations, I mean, it's really difficult at this point to see whether or not demonstrations could really be successful, given the vast cover-up and the ridicule that has happened over the last 50 years. I mean, generally, people just think that this whole field is full of cranks and people who are really trying to make a fast buck on the gullibility of others. Yeah. So that's where the kind of, uh, you know, a lot of the mainstream perception is. So we need to kind of get beyond that. Uh, and the best way of doing that is to use kind of reliable scholarship. And, you know, as for those who do the nitpicking, uh, who look at uh, some of these whistleblowers and kind of try and tear apart their credibility by picking out these inconsistencies, well, you know, I think that's, uh, that, that approach is pretty transparent. I mean, you see it in so many of the mainstream UFO researchers who have taken that approach to even people like Philip Corso, whose credentials really were pretty solid. But yet they'll nitpick on certain, you know, they'll nitpick that, well, he was a lieutenant colonel and not a full colonel, as he said. Or they'll say, well, he served as chief of the foreign technology desk at the Pentagon for six months and not two years. So, you know, if he exaggerates about that, well, you know, he's a liar and don't, don't take anything he says uh, seriously. And that, that's the, that kind of nitpicking really does a disservice to the serious information that many of these whistleblowers are releasing and many of them do take major risks and have paid with their lives and so we need to look at it in a much more objective, impartial way and, and, and I think um, a, a lot of the UFO researchers, their criticisms really is a little more than just nitpicking. And what do you mean by that? It's sort of like a, like a sour grape sort of thing, uh, turf protection in a way or or just um, self-loathing almost of, <laughs> of ufology? Well, you know, it's, it's looking at uh, whatever inconsistency they can find in the testimony of a whistleblower or in their credentials. So, for example, they'll pick someone like, a, like Robert Dean, uh, Command Sergeant Major Robert Dean, and, and they'll say, well, look at, look at his testimony. I mean, he says uh, he had access to uh, this uh, top-secret document in the in the vault of the uh, command center at uh, at um, 
you know, back in the early 60s. And so they'll pick on some aspect of his uh, background. So, for example, Kevin Randall, uh, one of the major UFO researchers, um, he'll say that, well, um, he, that is, um, uh, with Dean, he wasn't a part of the briefing team for for NATO, he was really working in the admin or in the clerical section lending support. Well, basically what he's done is he has conflated two periods in Robert Dean's uh, service at NATO. You know, initially he was uh, part of the, the briefing team there in the Supreme Headquarters Operations Center, and then he moved into the uh, clerical section or the uh, in the languages section for the last two years. So. Uh, Randall will say, well, this is what he did, and, and he'll just focus on that last two years and, and ignore the first two years. And people lose the nuances here. They'll say, oh, well, Dean might be making it up. If he served in the languages section in, in ad, admin, well, then what's he doing talking about seeing uh, a top-secret document while he was uh, in the operations center? So those little kind of nuances get lost uh, as, uh, as people kind of nitpick at uh, various aspects of a person's Testimony. To sort of throw back to this to this goals idea in a way is uh, something that I've sort of complained about in recent interviews that I've done regarding uh, the UFO movement, how there doesn't seem to be any sort of uh, goal outside of the nebulous uh, truth about UFOs. So I guess I'll pose to you the question of like, what are the, the like uh, the solid sort of goals of exopolitics? Obviously, you say like a scholarly study of the UFO phenomenon. But is there uh, like a long-range sort of goal in mind, like long, uh, more, you know, government grants for UFO studies or uh, a congressional, a new congressional investigation into UFOs? Is there anything um, that you guys sort of have as a long-term, um, you know, watermark that you want to reach? Oh, definitely, yes. I mean, that's really what I'm putting a lot of my energy into at the moment is building up uh, the Exopolitics Institute as – uh, an organization that will support exopolitics researchers out in the field. Mm -hmm. um, I can talk more about the Institute um, uh, later, but uh, essentially what we're trying to do is develop an organization that can bring together various researchers who can take on particular problems um, that are of interest to various uh, researchers in the field. So, for example, some people might be interested on the relationship between extraterrestrials and nuclear weapons. And so if you get a group of people who are interested in that, you know, they can they can work together and collaborate on various projects. Or you can bring people together who are more interested in, say, the contactee phenomenon, uh, looking at uh, what happens when uh, human-looking extraterrestrials meet with uh, um, people in the street. Uh, what, what, what are the consequences of this? And so they can study that phenomenon. So you have all these different aspects of the extraterrestrial phenomenon. And if you get scholars or researchers to collaborate on these different areas, uh, then you can make progress. And, and as, a, as an organization, the Exopolitics Institute uh, creates a, a kind of a rubric for this to happen and can generate support in terms of finances, can generate support in terms of an institutional home for people doing this kind of research. Um, and there's things like the Exopolitics Journal as well, which is another uh, initiative. Essentially, we need to put together a, a credible journal out there that uh, can be a home for well thought through and uh, systematic analyses of various exopolitical phenomena. And then there's a kind of exopolitical training program. You know, how do you train or instruct people to approach exopolitics seriously, just like uh, any 
uh, discipline in a university. I mean, uh, people can study international politics. Well, why can't you study exopolitics? So that's what we've do that's what we've done. We've created a program, and people can actually now do uh, get a, an exopolitics certificate, an online uh, series of courses, and so that's uh, underway. And we've got. Uh, uh, three instructors working in that at the moment, and we plan to expand that. So those are some of the things we're doing to make exopolitics a, a viable scholarly approach to this extraterrestrial phenomenon. I hear you on the on the goals in mind. What what about um? You're very involved in the political realm. Where do you want to see this exopolitics movement go with regards to politics? Obviously, you would like this UFO issue. Uh, addressed, obviously, by, you know, uh, as a major campaign issue in any campaign, obviously that must be one of the goals. Where do you see you guys trying to, like, make that an issue? Well, there's so many areas where it really needs to be impressed upon those in the political process that this is a serious phenomenon. For example, when we look at the uh, space weapons issue, uh, we need to look at, well, what are the space weapons uh, being really targeted towards? I mean, if we just uh, proceed on the assumption that there's a uh, the problem of rogue states with uh, nuclear missiles and that uh, space weapons are being geared towards those, well, then obviously elected political representatives are not going to be very kind of interested in looking at the UFO issue. But if we are able to impress upon them the reality that extraterrestrials have been uh, visiting us for over five decades and that these space weapons may be targeted towards those, well, that's a that's an important issue. I mean, what, what are the political representatives going to do about that? Are they just going to let the Pentagon uh, make all these policy decisions, or are they going to um, allow this to be something to be discussed and uh, legislated over in the in the Congress? And, and, of course, there are so many other issues, like uh, the um, uh, technologies that extraterrestrials have. I mean, what do you do with these technologies uh, are found to be something that can revolutionise our energy sector. Is this something that we would want to release to the general public? Uh, would we want it to be uh, a gradual release, or would it be something that would be withheld for a time? I mean, all of these things need to be part of the political process rather than be decided in the background by people who are unelected and really operate in a process that uh, violates constitutional processes. And do you think it's just the mm, textbook style of politics in a way, you know, where, you know, we find a candidate we like and we try and get him elected? Is that even going to be possible to, to overcome this this in-place machine, if you will, that's keeping the UFO secret uh, underground? Well, I mean... <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a cynical sort of question, but I guess, like, you know, like, even if we get one guy in that, that we think is, is going to be, you know, pro-UFO and, and help out to try and get the answers out, is, is it going to be... A David versus Goliath type situation here, where the you know the people who are keeping the secrets are so entrenched that that I'm not sure what it's going to take to get it out. Well, you know, this is really why I think the education sector is really the key here, because I mean, if you look at any successful social movement, it's always been successful because you have an interest group which uh, uh, works together to mobilise to work towards their goals, and it really does get a lot of student support or people in the universities uh, get uh, inspired by these issues. So, for example, you look at the civil rights movement, why was that successful? One, you had a kind of a politically uh, mobilized constituency, that is the uh, African Americans in the, in the South, and, and second, you had a lot of kind of college-level students uh, throughout the United States who were very sympathetic and supportive and, and, and banded towards uh, 
becoming part of this um, social movement. And I think we need to do the same thing with exopolitics. We need to understand that you know, there is a kind of disenfranchised uh, community here, which of course is the American public, but a lot of the people just aren't aware. So we need to get the information out, get them to know that this is going on, and that involves getting the mass media on board. Um, of course, we need to inspire the university-level students to kind of like uh, take this seriously and to start to work to um, change the scenario. Um, and then, of course, we're going to eventually have someone in the political process embracing this, and that'll, that'll be a positive step forward. But in the absence of a, of a mobilised constituency or in a kind of uh, aggressive student-level uh, uh, movement, um, I, I really find it hard to believe that there'll be any one politician brave enough to stand forward on this issue. <laughs> yeah, we have an example of that actually from <laughs> from ten years ago that we'll get to in a moment with the uh, Symington story. But um, what do you now with the exopolitics movement? Um, do you foresee an end game scenario where what, what do you where do you see exopolitics fitting into the post UFO disclosure situation? Because there's a lot of people in the UFO movement who think that once the secret about UFOs comes out, if it does, that the people who are in ufology now are going to be completely marginalized and squeezed out and, and, and forgotten about um, after we get our five minutes of I told you so. So uh, what do you think is the end game of exopolitics and where do you see it fitting in in this uh, post-UFO world if it ha ever happens? Well, I think you're, you're right that once this does come out, a lot of those that have been trying to argue that uh, UFOs are real and get get the public to take this on board, you know, they'll be kind of like, um, you know, really paraded around as people who are right on this particular question, but then forgotten as you get the mainstream um, organisations and universities all looking at this phenomenon in a more kind of scholarly, objective way. And I think that's where the exopolitics movement really needs to move towards, because exopolitics itself is a term that will not be... Uh, supplanted by something else. I mean, ufology will basically become redundant because they no longer will be unidentified objects. They'll be identified. We'll know what they are. So the whole field becomes redundant. Yeah. Uh, UFOs are something that we won't uh, believe is pertinent to our lives because we'll know that there are visitors from other worlds coming in their, in their ships um, and that uh, the ones that are unidentified, it's a trivial question because we know that they're extraterrestrial and we just don't know from what, what planet or whatever. So ufology will become redundant. But exopolitics will continue because the term itself is something that uh, has, uh, has been crafted because this is exactly where the um, scholarly community will move towards once this is accepted as real. Just as we have a legitimate field called exobiology, where basically biologists are able to study uh, extraterrestrial life forms that uh, come into their possession or which they speculate about, so too exopolitics will be a branch of the social sciences, just as international politics is part of the social sciences. Uh, just as, say, uh, comparative politics is part of the social sciences. In other words, there will be a branch of the political uh, a branch of politics that will be called exopolitics and will always remain a legit legitimate field of study because we will always want to understand the political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. And I think the more the exopolitical community can move in that direction of creating this uh, exopolitical field as a scholarly study, the easier it will be to integrate many scholars who are becoming interested. I, I, I always get a lot of scholars 
uh, people who have professional backgrounds approaching me saying, oh, this is real, we're excited about this, and what can we do? And I tell them, well, write a scholarly article, submit it to the Exopolitics Journal. And the more that people do this, the more we will get the Exopolitics uh, field accepted as a mainstream study to this uh, very important aspect of, the, of politics. Yeah, so you're saying like uh, exopolitics is a natural, like it'll be the natural evolution from geopolitics, if you will, and uh, and in turn, it's best to you know sort of lay the groundwork for that ourselves first before you know the mainstream comes in and tries to set it up and squeeze everybody out. Exactly. Yes. I mean, we we understand geopolitics, international politics, that these describe particular aspects of, of political processes, and the exopolitics is just a is just a bigger pie. And the pie goes beyond the Earth. It's now becomes the galaxy. And as you said quite rightly, that uh, once the bigger players come onto the scene, once you know, you can imagine all of these uh, think tanks, the Brookings Institution, uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the uh, Council on Foreign Relations. Once these major think tanks start to put, churn out papers on exopolitics, it'll mean that uh, the whole field will be awash with all of these different perspectives. And so the more we can establish uh, our own distinct foothold and establish this field as credible, the more we'll be able to shape the future when exopolitics is, this, is actually studied uh, in, uh, in a more rigorous academic way. You said you have a lot of uh, scholars that contact you about the exopolitical movement. Now, obviously, you were you were part of uh, the collegiate atmosphere and and were sort of pushed out because of your exopolitical work. Do you find that a lot of the people that are contacting you are afraid of that sort of situation happening? Well, a lot of the ones that are contacting me are people who are coming out of it at the end of their careers, particularly the you know the retirement phase. They've got nothing to lose anymore. They can say what they really believe, and they're not frightened, uh, which is which is great because I mean these are these are credible people. But the thing is, uh, you you really want to get into some of the major players, for example, Noam Chomsky. You know, we've been in touch with Noam Chomsky and try to get him to kind of take on board this exopolitical issue, and he's interested, which is kind of like a, a significant in itself. But uh, he's still not ready to embrace this field. Uh, he just doesn't think that the data is uh, solid enough for him. But I mean, the day will come where it will be persuasive enough where Noam Chomsky will come on board and then I think there'll be just, you know, the floodgates will open up as a lot of kind of critical, more critical academics and scholars start to take this field seriously. I worry about when that day comes for some of these old school ufologists. I hope they're remembered and and, uh, and kept in, in, the, in the loop, if you will, or at least, you know, I worry at least about the about that sort of world when ufology gets more accepted. Hopefully they'll, they'll be remembered as, as the trendsetters that they were. Well, yeah, I mean, it'll, it'll move, I think it'll move tremendously quickly because what, what will happen is that people will look for information about this phenomenon because you can, you can imagine an announcement is made tomorrow or something breaks the secrecy system. Now, people are not going to be interested in the question of are UFOs real? I mean, it's, it'll be redundant. What they'll be interested in is, well, who are they? What are they doing? What are their motivations? How are they impacting upon us now? So the more we look at these questions now, the more relevant we're going to be. And that's really what I think exopolitics is doing. And I think a lot of the UFO researchers, what they've been doing is, because of the last 50 years, they've been focusing on the question of, well, is it real? Let's put together as much of the credible data as we can. You know, they have put themselves in the position where they will cease to be relevant once this uh, breaks. And, and that's a shame. And, and the thing is... Um, 
you know, uh, I certainly have been trying to persuade UFO researchers to look at these exopolitical uh, issues seriously, but uh, I'm finding a lot of resistance, and and because uh, it seems there's a, there's a lot of uh, vested uh, interest in terms of how this problem is studied, and so. Um, I think they really have put themselves in a very tough situation. Well, what do you mean in the sense of uh, vested interest? Because I've sort of heard that sort of uh, same um, figure of speech almost in a way in the sense that uh, they all have their own agendas as far as what they think it is, and therefore, you know, they're not really interested in, in joining up with any other factions unless they all agree on the same sort of principle in a sense. Do you know what I mean? Like extra, they're extraterrestrials or they're from another dimension or whatever, you know, it's like, they have their own agenda as far as what the UFOs are and they can't work with other people, that kind of thing, or or what, what exactly do you mean? Well, basically by the vested interest, what I mean is that uh, many UFO researchers really want to define the whole UFO phenomenon as something to be studied akin to the scientific study of any physical phenomenon. In other words, they basically want to perceive themselves or they want to be perceived as scientists and they want to be taken seriously by the scientific community. This is why they have, for the last 30, 40 years, have been wanting to put out credible data that will persuade scientists that this phenomenon is real and get scientists to look at this phenomenon seriously. So what they're really interested in getting, like the Federation of uh, American Scientists and the uh, American Association of, uh, uh, of Scientists and all of the other kind of physical scientific uh, communities, to look at this uh, phenomenon seriously. That is the constituency that they're pitching at. And I think it's the wrong constituency. I mean, frankly, I think we don't need to persuade physical scientists or uh, these communities that this phenomenon is real. What we need to do is expose the political cover-up that has been occurring for 50, 60 years, rally people, mobilize them to make this system stop. And I think they've been pitching uh, their energies at that level of persuading mainstream scientists that this phenomenon is real. And, uh, and they really haven't grown very much from that. They're still arguing the same things. They're still wanting to uh, look, look at the data. For example, the release of the French files. Well, I mean, a lot of the veteran UFO researchers will say, great, now we have more credible data that we can pitch at the mainstream scientific community and say, see, this phenomenon is real. And, and it's like, well, there's much more we need to do than just argue that the phenomenon is real. And, and these are the vested interests there. In other words, they want to frame the UFO field as a credible scientific venture that should be taken seriously by credible, reputable scientists. Yeah, so you're saying like a straight science approach is not the way to go on the UFO issue. I, I think it's entirely counterproductive because once you try to define the, the phenomenon in those terms, what you are then doing is that you raise the credibility or you raise the evidentiary levels artificially high. I mean, they basically become too high because, I mean, you look at the way the mainstream sciences are conducted. I mean, these are done in, in very rigorous laboratory set, settings where you can confirm the physical data. Well, that's all well and good when the, uh, when the data can be studied in a transparent, uh, verifiable way where scientists can confirm and cross-check the data. But when you actually have an, a, a political system set up to interfere with that process, to confiscate material, to intimidate witnesses, to basically uh, intimidate the, the researchers themselves, um, when you have that happening and distorting the whole enterprise, well, then what you have is not really an objective scientific study. What you have is a skewed study 
that comes out with uh, a, a very filtered set of uh, premises that can be confirmed by the evidence which is allowed to uh, maintain itself or which is allowed to continue to be studied. Now you say you sort of ran into a lot of. I don't want to beat on the ufology anymore. Too much more. <laughs> too much more. We've got one more sort of uh, sub question that sort of came out of that. And you said that, that you've had a hard time sort of getting some of these ufologists on board. Do you think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you've come from outside of ufology with this this new way of doing things? And and ufology, much like really any sort of branch of research, is is well known for pushing out the newcomers in a way, or or sort of uh, putting them through the, the grinding mill, if you will. Um, so do you think a lot, a big part of that has been that sort of uh, backlash against the newcomer with the new idea sort of thing? I think it, a lot of it has to do with that. I mean, I, I did come out of this, uh, did come into this field with a, a political science background, and my own approach was based on kind of the qualitative tools that political scientists use. In other words, for example, if you're approaching a particular phenomenon such as uh, human rights, right, you know, in the science in the social sciences, what you'll do is you'll do some field work and you'll start to talk to witnesses and, and they will tell you that, well, yes, uh, our government is abusing us and you'll start to develop a profile. Now, of course, at the same time, mainstream governments will tell you, no, there are no human rights abuses in, happening in this country. Uh, for example, um, you, you might say that uh, any country you, you choose, for example, Israel, you say, okay, no human rights abuses occurring in Israel. Israel is a liberal state and we protect everyone's rights here. And, and so and so you'll have that kind of thing and so you'll have uh, government, supporting government saying, that no, it's not happening. But if you go in there and you interview people, you find out that there's a pattern of human rights abuses against citizens of, say, um, non-Jewish uh, identity there, right? And so, uh, and so eventually you develop a kind of uh, toolbox or you develop a, a, a coherent or a credible set of body of evidence saying that this is real, that human rights abuses are occurring in this particular country. And it's not just Israel, it can be China, it can be many different countries, uh, Korea, North Korea, and so forth. Um, so similarly, when it comes to UFOs, you, you take that approach, which is to look at the qualitative data, and you and you, then you build a case that this is real. Well, of course, the UFO researchers, what they want to do is they want to be able to say that uh, the data that we are working with is methodologically sound enough for mainstream scientists to look at it, and your qualitative tools are not rigorous enough. Well, of course they're not rigorous enough because governments interfere with the data. I mean, they're not letting witnesses come out. They're not letting UFO researchers, uh, you know, look at the, uh, the, the the real data, which is what government knows is happening behind the scenes concerning UFOs. So whenever you have a level of government interference, that means that we need to bring in qualitative tools to look at the data in a more selective and more refined way, whereas the UFO researchers resisted that. And so when I came in and started to propose these more uh, subtle, more sophisticated, uh, qualitative research tools, they, they objected to that and they basically wanted to portray me as this kind of maverick researcher who, who was really trying to muddy the waters. The UFO, uh, the ufology feels a wild world. Uh. <laughs> um. But I, I like what you're doing, though. I mean, I have no problem with it, and, and uh, I, I've, I've had people on the show who are really down on exopolitics, but I'm all for the proactive, uh, that proactive sort of approach, because, you know, let's try whatever we can. Try a bunch of different ways to get this going, you know what I mean? Well, that, this is right. I mean, I, I think um, you know, the, the two that need to really go together. I mean, the, you know, there is a physical aspect to this, and we need to have good, solid scientific analyses of the data to, to make sure that while it wasn't, you know, a natural phenomenon 
that this light in the sky that we've filmed or that we have on photograph, that it's not just a, a natural phenomenon that can be explained or something else, and that, in fact, we need that. But we also need to have uh, a rigorous political analysis of the underlying system that manages the whole UFO phenomenon, and there have been decisions made behind the scenes to make this a national security issue, and so we really need to have the two running together. We need to have a balance between the two, and I think if you just have one without the other, that both can suffer. And I, and I personally have found it very helpful to have debates with some of the uh, mainstream UFO researchers such as Kevin Randall, Stanton Friedman and others, because it, it's helped me to better develop my own evidentiary standards, and so I, I think I've benefited from that. But at the same time, I think that uh, many of the UFO researchers really haven't reciprocated and become more open to the kind of approach that I have, and so I think that in the end that they lose from that. Yeah, it's disappointing. Um, now let's talk about uh, one of the papers you have here on, on the uh, exopolitics.org website, and that's False Flag Operations 9-11 and the Exopolitical Perspective. I was really happy to see you tackle the 9-11 issue. A lot of people in ufology don't want to touch it. A lot of people in the 9-11 movement definitely don't want to touch UFOs. Um, so what, uh, and I obviously, uh, and I, I think that there is a definitely some kind of tie-in between the two. If 9-11 if, if was an inside job, ergo, uh, we can assume that the people who had something to do with 9-11 probably have their fingers in the UFO pie as well. I think that's kind of what you're where you're getting at with the with the article. But talk a little bit about the, the paper here on exopolitics.org. Uh, false flag operations, 9-11, and the exopolitical perspective. Well, what was really interesting for me was that I began to read a lot of the uh, the, the literature on 9-11. For a few years, I kind of kept uh, distant from it because I understood the you know, importance of trying to work on the exopolitical field and, and bring that up to speed. But um, eventually, I, I, as I began to engage more with the 9-11 literature and saw Alex Jones' uh, um, more recent um, DVD, Terror Storm, uh, I really got the feeling that a lot of the 9-11 researchers were not going deep enough in terms of explaining what was happening. I mean, they will say that uh, that the 9-11 uh, is, a, is a false flag operation and that really what drives it is the desire to monopolize oil reserves so that the oil corporations in the U.S. can make uh, massive, massive uh, profits and, of course, also to ensure that the... Uh, weapons industries keep on churning out the, the latest armaments and so that uh, we have a reason for, for buying Lockheed Martin's latest missiles or whatever. Mm -hmm. So these are the kind of explanations that a lot of the 9-11 uh, researchers give for what drove the false flag operations uh, into 9-11. And it, it kind of like pitches it to the issue of personal greed of corporations and major figures like, like the Bush family saying, well, the Bush family, they got their fingers in the pie of the oil cartel and so they want to personally profit from this. And, and I realized that this is really a kind of uh, a lower level explanation. In, in a way, it's kind of superficial. We need to go beyond that. We need to go deeper because I don't think it, it is just a question of a few elites or corporations personally enriching themselves here at all. I think there's a deeper phenomenon happening, that there's a systematic process by which oil prices can be driven up so that uh, it's not just a question of uh, U.S. oil corporations reaping in uh, enormous profits, but I think it's also done for the purpose of ensuring that uh, funds are being uh, generated for black projects that are being funded entirely outside of the, the 
legitimate congressional appropriations process. And this is something that any exopolitics researcher realises that if you do have a, a vast system of projects that are being funded outside of the congressionally um, mandated appropriations process, you need to have alternative revenue systems, altern alternative sources of revenue. And this comes from such things as uh, the oil uh, industry uh, being able to generate large profits that go through kind of uh, these uh, shelf companies or or other processes that uh, benefit from false flag operations. And so that was really the reason why I put together that paper, just to draw, to draw bring to the attention of those doing the 9-11 research that in fact there, there's this whole area of false flag operations that go beyond the personal enrichment of particular families or corporations that go into feeding a much deeper kind of uh, octopus, if you like, of black projects and a black budget that needs to generate projects and funding uh, for a whole swath of projects outside of um, the, the kind of regular uh, military uh, black projects. So this is this is really where I think we need to look beyond the superficial explanations that non, that false flag operations are just done for the benefits of kind of uh, corrupt families. That in fact that they can be part of a more elaborate, more systematic effort to generate resources for things that are kept well below the, the radar. And have you gotten much feedback on that 9-11 piece, uh, either from the UFO folks or, or the 9-11 people? I would suspect that the 9-11 people, are, are, they really don't like to do the UFO thing much. You don't see too much crossover. I think that's basically what's happened, that the 9-11 people don't want to cross over into the UFO field. For them, it's something that can delegitimize 9-11 uh, uh, research, and that's fair enough, I understand. I mean, if you look at the 9-11 uh, movement, it's generated enormous support. Thousands and thousands of people go to these 9-11 conferences and they look at the data seriously. Uh, and you look at UFO conferences in, in comparison, even though UFO, UFO studies have been around for, for much longer and much more research has been generated, you only get a few hundred people going to these UFO conferences, whereas you get like thousands going to the 9-11 conferences. And I think it's because um, the 9-11 movement is, is fresher, it hasn't been ridiculed. Uh, people uh, think that this is something that can seriously uh, kind of um, uh, upset the apple cart. And so I, I think that they are very rightly concerned about legitimacy and they are concerned that uh, if they take on the UFO or the exopolitical uh, orientation, that that can help delegitimize the field. And I understand that. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of prag pragmatic and I know that uh, strategically they need to do that. But I think that they cannot do that for too long. It's, a, it's an artificial uh, distinction because ultimately, if you're going to look at false flag operations seriously, if you're going to look at 9-11 seriously, you cannot just stop at the argument that this was caused because neocons suddenly got together, you know, what, what was it, uh, eight months after the Bush administration won power and arranged for government bureaucracies to uh, facilitate these 9-11 these uh, attacks. That, there's no way in the world that can happen. That in, in eight months, I mean, the Bush administration came to power in January of 2001, and so you're telling me eight months later, January of, of 2001, sorry, in eight months later, September of 2001, that they can basically hoodwink vast, uh, hoodwink a, a, a major part of the American bureaucracy 
so that it can turn a blind eye to these 9-11 attacks that were actually orchestrated from within the, uh, within the administration. No way. There was something much more systematic that predated the Bush administration's um, election rise to power. In other words, there's a, a secret government that made the 9-11 attacks a pivotal moment in the political process of the United States. And so when you had the Bush administration come to power, this secret government operating well before the Bush administration came to power basically got its act together and said, okay, you guys, this is what you're going to do. This is in your agenda. Go for it, and we're going to make sure that uh, you're, you're going to be allowed to do this. And I think that's what happened. There's yeah. a secret government operating here. The same secret government that, that's uh, behind the whole UFO cover-up, essentially, right? Exactly. I mean, they needed uh, another major distraction to get people away from the truth. And, and you know, whether or not uh, 9-11 was uh, concocted because the May uh, 2001 press conference that Stephen Greer arranged or whether it was another set of factors driving this, I think ultimately we need to look at uh, what drove 9-11 and what's behind false flag operations as, as being more than just a bunch of neocons that were recently elected or you know, re uh, elected back then recently in uh, January of 2001 and going back much further into the way in which the secret government has its hooks into the whole um, political system in the United States. Yeah, and this 9-11 movement is really fascinating to watch from the outside because, as you said, they really they kind of have everything that is ideal for a movement in a way with the, you know, they have large rallies and lots of people coming to their conferences and now they're getting celebrity endorsements. These are the kind of things that ufology needs and doesn't have yet. And, and it's surprising because ufology has been around for so long and 9-11 just come along. It's, it's, a, it's a weird sort of thing to watch from a sociological perspective. Well, you know, I think that they were very clever. Those who uh, were managing the UFO phenomenon from a national security perspective, you really came up with an ingenious way of marginalizing the whole field, and that was the ridicule factor. Um, they did it back in 1953 with the Robinson panel where they said, well, debunk the reports, and you use the ridicule factor. And any professional doesn't want to be ridiculed. I mean, you, you can lose uh, uh, many benefits. You can lose your reputation, your status, your job, your career, if you're ridiculed by your peers. So no one wants to be ridiculed. So all of a sudden you have this field called ufology, and if you get involved in it, you get ridiculed. You know, people laugh at you. You're not taken seriously. So you basically, they, people don't get involved in that, and that's what's happened. Whereas the 9-11 movement is fresh, and the ridicule factor doesn't exist. And the thing is, I mean, there's the ideal response to the ridicule factor, which is people can see the evidence. They can see, for example, World Trade Center number 7 collapsing on the very same day. I mean, what is it, six hours after... The Twin Towers collapsed, World Trade Center collapses, what, a 47-story building? Nothing had hit it, what, 100 meters away from the two trade centers? I mean, obviously people know that this is a controlled demolition, something fishing going on here. So it's not something you ridicule. You can't ridicule that. You know, the evidence is solid. It's real. And I think that's why the 9-11 movement is, a, is, you know, kind of like the 800-pound gorilla in the room. It can really shake things up. And I, I hope they do succeed because I think if they do succeed, they will open up a lot of doors. And at some point, the 9-11 
a movement, if it becomes successful, they will realise that, hey, you know, this couldn't have been orchestrated by a bunch of neocons who were elected in January of 2001. There was something else here, and I think they'll be moving deeper into really what drove 9-11. What do you think is going on right now here in America nowadays? There seems to be a UFO flap going on, and um, what, well, I guess the first question I would want to ask you is that, is it more a UFO media coverage flap than an actual UFO sightings flap? And either way, uh, what do you think is going on here? It seems to start with O'Hare, and then we move into the Symington Phoenix Light story, and of course we're going to have the Roswell anniversary this July. Seems like 2007 is going to be a big year for for the UFO movement and, and obviously exopolitics. Well, that's right. Yes, I think the um, O'Hare sighting really did get mainstream media support, and that, that that was great. I mean, because I think it was one of the most cited uh, events in in media history. So it seems that uh, the mainstream media is finally turning on to this issue being serious. So I thought that that would happen with the Peter Jennings special back in, um, uh, what was it, in uh, January or February of uh, 2005 when uh, Peter Jennings did his special and basically got mainstream in, uh, media interested in that. But that kind of tended to die away. But I think, um, nevertheless, the mainstream media embraced the O'Hare sighting and since that time there has been this kind of buzz uh, in the mainstream media uh, on the UFO phenomenon. Canada has been quite fortunate because they've had Paul Hallier, who's been a focus of the Canadian media. And so Canada, they've had a steady stream of uh, media reports on Paul Hallier and, and uh, people uh, associating themselves with some of the things that he's been saying. So that's been helpful. In the US, there hasn't been too much and, uh, of that until we had the, the, the Symington kind of uh, issue uh, taking off. And that's something that's been very helpful. And then uh, we also had the uh, uh, France releasing its uh, UFO files on the internet, and that also became a kind of major media, um, uh, generated media blitz here in the US. So it seems that uh, the media is getting on board now with the UFO phenomenon as being something real. Uh, it's not something to be ridiculed anymore. And so this is, this is good because, you know, once you chip away at that kind of ridicule factor, you know, once people understand that this is real, it needs to be studied, it's not something to be laughed at anymore, that's great because now we're moving into the field of uh, ufology and exopolitics as being serious and, you know, it's kind of like that Schopenhauerian um, uh, evolution of ideas. First it goes through the, the stage of ridicule, then it goes through the stage of opposition and then it becomes self-evident. Well, it looks like we've finally gotten out of the ridicule phase and now we're moving into the phase of opposition. So that's good. So there's been progress. Now, do you foresee, does the exopolitics movement have a plan of action with regards to the to harnessing this media interest that's going on right now? As I'm sure, with the media being more interested in UFOs than, than it have been in a long time, there's a, really an opportunity there to use that to educate people or, you know, make a case for, for you know, whatever you want as a goal for the Exopolitics Institute. Do you guys have a plan of, of sorts with regards to, you know, uh, dealing with this, this renewed media interest? Well, I mean, I'll pick, a, I'll pick on a particular case like the Symington disclosure uh, where the, the former governor of Arizona says that uh, in 1997 he in fact had seen the Phoenix flight and, and of course he was the guy that uh, arranged a press conference which uh, ridiculed the whole thing and, and of course that was uh, something that uh, wasn't known for 10 years until he recently came forward and, and disclosed that uh, he, in fact he had seen it. And I think that raises a number a number of political, exopolitical questions because on the one hand you, you have the... the, the the, the ufologists are happy because they say, okay, former Arizona governor says he saw UFOs, UFOs are real, 
he was a former pilot, and so uh, he just lends credibility to the whole UFO uh, phenomenon, and so that's great, and so a lot of the uh, ufologists have gotten traction out of the, the Symington disclosure. But from the exopolitical perspective, and we haven't done this yet, uh, is that, well, we need to look at, uh, well, what made him actually uh, re basically come out with that uh, prank at the at the process at the um, in Arizona back in 1997 was it purely because he wanted to kind of dampen down what he says what quote the hysteria that was building in Arizona uh, because of the Phoenix lights or was there something else was he in fact told to to you know dampen things down did he receive a phone call and and was basically instructed hey you 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 basically dampen this thing down or else. And we mustn't forget that he, at the time, was experiencing very serious problems, legal problems. And in fact, he was charged. He was indicted, and he was actually given a sentence for uh, for fraud. So he was under severe political pressure, legal legal pressure at the time. So I don't think there's any accident that he, in fact, uh, was able to take on a position that... Uh, no, this was not something that uh, was, was serious, and we back then in '97 that this was something that uh, we could just kind of uh, ignore, and that for 10 years he would remain silent on this because I think he was basically gotten to, and I think this is a serious exopolitical issue. It shows that how mainstream political figures who are possibly going to play a role in this can be gotten at in a number of ways, and for Symington he had significant legal problems. And um, they got to him from that. And, and, and for example, even though he was uh, sentenced, uh, eventually they were able to, uh, I mean, the charges were eventually dropped and then the, uh, the Clinton administration arranged for his pardon. So did he get benefit because he maintained silence? These are one of the exopolitical questions we should look at. And they're sensitive questions. And, and of course, uh, and, and this is kind of, in a little way, contrary to the, the ufologists wanting to emphasise that, okay, former governor Arizona, former Arizona governor comes forward with UFOs being real. We look at the exopolitical questions, and, and those are things that we need to look at it in some way. And what do you say to uh, the people in, in in ufology and outside ufology or whatever who are, who are uh, and I guess I would kind of fall into this camp too, although I'm kind of over it now because the story broke like two weeks ago, but I was kind of mad at the time. And the people who were sort of mad that, that uh, he didn't do anything, and now he's coming out. Uh, now, ten years later, he's coming out to say that he, that that he was, you know, he saw something, and 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 blah blah blah. Like, that, what do you what do you have to say to that sort of feeling of, um, yeah, thanks for nothing, man, you know, or too too little, too late sort of attitude towards Symington, or or just sort of a general disgust with the way he handled it. And now he he's coming out to sort of look for forgiveness from from the UFO people or something. Well, I must admit I felt very much the same. When I listened to his interview on the uh, 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 George Nouri show, or Art Bell, um, I listened to his interview, and I really felt he was uh, lying. I mean, I felt he was lying in a couple of areas. I mean, he said, for example, he said that um, uh, he, back then, three months after the Arizona Lights, he came out with that press release to dampen down the new, the new uh, what the neurotic responses or, or the paranoia. I think that was the expression he used. And I felt he was lying. I, I didn't think there was paranoia. I think what was happening three months after the Arizona sighting was that there was significant build-up of people wanting to know 
what had happened. Yeah. What was going on? There wasn't paranoia. There were people weren't neurotic. People weren't committing suicide in the street. So I really felt he was being dishonest there. I, I, I felt a little kind of disgust at what he said there, that he was trying to spin things. That no, that was not a justification for what he did. There wasn't new uh, paranoia building at all. People were seriously wanting answers. And the second thing that made me uh, feel that he was uh, being uh, less than honest was uh, when he said that um, he had no intention of insulting people by uh, pulling that stunt of getting his chief of staff to dress in, as an alien coming in in handcuffs. He had no intention to insult. I, I think he was uh, being uh, dishonest there. I, I think, of course, it was going to insult people. He knew that. He, any any person with uh, any degree of intelligence would understand that if you have a constituency calling for a serious investigation of this phenomenon, and then you pull a, a stunt like that, of course you were going to insult them. I, I don't think he did it uh, um, unconsciously. He knew that there was uh, he was insulting people, but uh, but this is where I, I can be sympathetic for him. I think he had been gotten that. I think he had severe legal issues facing him. He was under a threat for indictment, and in fact he was indicted in that year, and I think he was basically looking after number one, and he knew that if he was going to look after number one, he would have to, you know, dampen down uh, this whole field, and, and for, the, for the next 10 years, I think uh, he was, uh, uh, he was uh, you know, silenced, and uh, I think he's come out, as you said, it was kind of too little, too late, but nevertheless... Uh, the fact is you have a former Arizona governor coming out on the record saying the UFO phenomenon is real and, and you know, he's trying to atone and, but, and, and even though I can be angry at him for, for kind of, um, embellishing or being less than honest or dishonest in, in why he did what he did back then, I, I think he can make amends if he, he said, yeah, they got to me. They got to me because, uh, of these legal problems I had. Yeah. And if he did that, I think he would be fully honest. And at the moment, I think he's being half honest. And now you sort of, uh, you sounded like you weren't thrilled with the French UFO papers. Um, what, what are your thoughts on this, this major disclosure here from the French government? Now, obviously, it's good for long-term uh, disclosure all around, so I guess that's a good thing. But are you, are you unenthused in general just because it's more uh, data and less, less really uh, traction? Well, yes, I think it's, uh, it's, I'm kind of ambivalent about it. I mean, I think it's a good thing overall because you have another government coming forward saying that this is serious, we need to look at it, and there's more credible data. And that's important because the, the ridicule factor is being used uh, for so long now um, that um, really any government that comes forward and says that this is real and uh, it's serious, I mean, that's helped. That helps a lot. And it helps also the press. I mean, because we have a lot of people in the, in the media in the mainstream media who are sympathetic to the UFO issue, but, I mean, if, if, they, if they're going to have editors, a hostile editorship, who basically say, no, you can't write on this, and, you know, no, no uh, news journalist wants to waste time on, on researching an article and you write, a, write up a good article and then you have your editor shoot it down because he says, well, you know, this is kind of nonsense or this is, uh, you know, there's, there's not enough credible data for this. You don't want to go through that. So I think, you know, what the French did, uh, it makes it easier for... Uh, mainstream journalists to write articles on this. But at the same time, what we don't have is the analysis. We don't have the, uh, you know, the, the genuine analysis of these reports. Okay, sure, military uh, reports, uh, military pilots report that uh, 
they saw these sightings. But, but what are the analyses of this? You know, what, what do the French national security uh, uh, team have to say about this? Why don't they release the, the, the analysis, the genuine analysis of, of what's going on? In, in other words, tell us what really the French know about this, not just, oh, here are the reports, here's the raw data, you, you make of it what you want. We couldn't understand it. Yeah, sure, okay. We, we know there's more going on. Why don't you tell us what you really think here? And there's none of that. And I think that's really what we need. Uh, we need a genuine disclosure from these governments, the French government or the Brazilian government or Mexican or any other government. Don't just release the raw data. Okay, sure, we know it's real. But give us your analysis. Don't say it's real, you can't explain it. There's more going on here. Um, and so that's really where I'd like more to, to happen. But as I said, it's kind of... Uh, um, a little ambivalent over that one. It's a process, I guess. And now, um, speaking of process, we have the big 2008 election coming up. Um, what are you What are you looking at at that from an exopolitical perspective? What do you, What do you see with the 2008 election? Is there anyone in the realm of possible candidates who may be sympathetic to the exopolitical cause, or is it just best to sort of uh, you know blanket all the candidates with with this issue and see if someone will bite? Well, I mean, uh, I mean. Clinton, Hillary Clinton, I mean, I just don't see her really embracing this issue. I mean, uh, it's well known that uh, Hill and Hillary Clinton were briefed on the UFO issue back in 2005 by the Rockefellers and that uh, uh, they basically made a decision that they weren't going to pursue this issue because it would uh, end uh, Bill Clinton's political career. And I, I think Hillary Clinton is uh, basically uh, already compromised in that sense. He has already knows that uh, the price for becoming a successful politician is secrecy when it comes to the UFO issue. So I see very little uh, uh, traction coming from uh, from that, uh, from Hillary Clinton being elected. Uh, if it's uh, someone like, like uh, Obama, um, uh, Barack, I mean, uh, we might see something fresh there, but, uh, I mean, they were able to get that uh, uh, Carter, President uh, Carter, back in the 70s, and uh, I think they're very good at being able to co-op elected uh, ex chief executives, uh, so I don't think there's anything going to happen in terms of the, the, the presidency, whether people in Congress themselves uh, embrace the UFO issue, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I really don't see Congress uh, being proactive on this. Uh, what I, I do think is more likely is that 9-11 uh, might break, and if 9-11 breaks, well, then that'll just kind of uh, really open things up, or maybe one of these congressional committees that are investigating the, the Republican the, um, the Bush administration, maybe they'll they'll come up with something and expose things. But uh, but I think if basically nothing changes between now and the election, and we just have a bunch of Democrats being elected, I think we'll probably have more of the same. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. One of the good things about the election, in in a sense, and we've had Greg Cameron on the show talking about this sort of thing, is it does give uh, like the layperson a chance to ask candidates questions, and it, it, it may have the opportunity to at least uh, forward the UFO question to to a candidate, you know, because they do a lot of public events and, and, and open sort of dialogue with, with uh, voters. So at least it, it hopefully somewhere between now and the election, someone will ask about the UFO question and we can get some on-the-record responses from, from some of these candidates. Maybe then we can push the issue a little bit. Well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, some of the leading candidates have to say. I mean, I, I guess if you ask, uh, Clint, uh, if you ask um, uh, Rudy Giuliani or... Um, some McCain. I mean, you might get some interesting uh, comments from them. Uh, and Obama, 
Barack, I mean, uh, he might have something to say. Uh, but um, I really don't know how much that is going to open things up uh, after the election. I mean, it's, it's known, for example, that uh, uh, Grant Cameron, I think uh, a question was asked of uh, Bush uh, during the uh, the 2000 election, uh, a bit of what would he say about uh, UFOs? And uh, I think uh, he said uh, something along the lines, well, uh, he'd, he'd look at it or get uh, Dick Cheney to look at it. Well, you know... <laughs> Seven years later, nothing's nothing's really happened. So I think people can say things during a, during an election campaign, but uh, very little can be done afterwards. And um, and, and the same thing happened with uh, President Carter. But of course, I think Carter did actually try to do something. But at the end of the day, he was also frustrated. Yeah. Let's talk about two of the big things you got going on here at exopolitics.org. That's the Exopolitics Institute, which uh, I'm tangentially involved with as your media advisor, one of the many media advisors and uh, the ExoPolitics Journal. So let's talk a little bit about those two two facets of ExoPolitics.org. Well, I'm very hopeful that the ExoPolitics Institute can generate uh, enough support to really make uh, some major waves here in terms of uh, serious study and uh, attention given to this extraterrestrial phenomenon. Uh, the Institute recently got its 501c3 status, which is a major step forward because it now means that we can apply for funding to... Uh, some major organizations so that we can do some of our projects. And there are many projects that can be studied with the uh, funding support of major organizations. For example, like the Soros Foundation. I mean, they are well, are well known for funding projects that help develop open societies and transparent government. Well, what we want to do is develop transparency in the, in the government process that has been set up to deal with the extraterrestrial phenomenon. So we can put together some projects uh, to try to get... Soros Foundation funding us so that we can uh, bring greater transparency into the whole way in which the UFO phenomenon and the extraterrestrial issue has been handled. Um, so that's that's a very important step forward. Um, as as you mentioned, we have uh, an advisory, a number of advisory boards, and so we're wanting to build that up to uh, create a, a really uh, an internationally uh, credible field or board of advisors uh, from a number of countries around the world so that we can actually make some traction in collaborating and networking on this, on this issue because it really is a global issue and on some things uh, other, other countries are way ahead of us. For example, say in Turkey and Brazil, it seems that many of the UFO researchers there have much more support from uh, their local communities and even local governments. Uh, for example, uh, I went to Italy in uh, October 2005 and the local government uh, was supporting one of the UFO uh, conferences there, which you know, is unheard of here in the United States. You would just never have a county government supporting uh, a UFO conference, but that's in fact what was happening in Italy, and it happens elsewhere. So uh, these are some of the things that um, I'm looking forward to as the Institute uh, develops itself as a very credible uh, organization. And, and, of course, the Exopolitics Journal, we just started with our second edition, uh, it's just come out. We're looking at some. Uh, we introduced some very uh, interesting articles. We have a poll of over a thousand people. A thousand and ninety-nine uh, people finished the poll uh, on uh, their attitudes concerning extraterrestrial visitation. So that's that's important because um, I think it really is the first genuine exopolitical poll that's been conducted and that has been released to the to the public. There've been other polls that are UFO polls, but they are questions concerning, well, are UFOs real? Do you believe the government is covering up evidence concerning UFOs? Well, 
the poll that's just up on the ExoPolitics Journal, um, that the report uh, analyzes the responses over questions such as, well, what would you do with government officials that uh, were complicit in the cover-up? Uh, what would you do with government officials who uh, participated in the policies that violated uh, constitutional procedures and so forth? So these are more exopolitical questions, so it's good to get public feedback on that. So that's the ExoPolitics Journal, and that's really the goal we have, uh, is to make it to, to be a kind of flagship for credible scholarship on exopolitics. Now, a question uh, that sort of just came out of that, what you just said, uh, that I should throw at you is, what, what do we do with, if, if the UFO uh, answer comes out, what do we do with these people that are, were complicit in covering it up? And if the cover-up is as devious as we've been led to believe through the last, you know, decades of research, some of the stuff that they've done to keep the UFO a secret uh, covered up is pretty nefarious. So uh, what, what do we do with, with the uh, the conspirators who have been keeping the UFO a secret under wraps if it, if it comes out? Well, that's going to be a really important question. I think this is something that uh, we need to start talking about now, and that was one of the things that I wanted to do with the poll, is to get people to start thinking about that question. You know, what do you do with these people? Do you just kind of give them a, a, a blanket amnesty? Do you give them a check and just tell them, okay, go away? Uh, you know, you give up power, and uh, and, and, that's, and that's all you need to do, which is what, what happened in, say, some of the... Uh, third world countries where there was a, uh, like countries in Latin America where there was a, a transition uh, from a, a regime that committed many human rights abuses uh, and when they wanted to have a more democratic system come in, they just arranged for amnesty for the public officials who were complicit in the cover-up or in the human rights abuses. Well, you know, we have something very similar here. I mean, the, the cover-up uh, has, uh, has involved a number of aspects to it. Some have been benign. And some of them have been more sinister. In fact, uh, many abuses have been uh, performed, as you no doubt are aware of. And the thing is, well, what do you do with people uh, at the policy level who are allowed for these uh, abuses to occur on, on the basis of national security? Um, you know, what, what do you do with, with those uh, officials? Um, do you prosecute them? Do you just get them to disclose the truth um, in exchange for amnesty? Um, these, are, these are important policy questions. And personally, I think the most important thing and the most helpful thing is to have people come out with the truth. And that uh, it's, it's better to have um, uh, a large number of people coming out with the truth um, and giving them amnesty than, than to prosecute a smaller number who then kind of like clam up and, and reveal very little as they go through the, the, the kind of legal process. And that seems to be the, the, the way in which you can actually have a more genuine transition, because that's what we're going to have here. We're going to have a, a, a transition, probably the most uh, significant transition uh, that, uh, say, the United States has experienced uh, in its history, because what we're going from is a system that has been deliberately lying to its citizenry for over five decades, uh, involving both parties, uh, officials from both parties, and what do you do with that? You know, the system has failed tremendously. And, you know, will there be a, a major overhaul of the system and the national security uh, processes that have been implemented? So these are big policy questions. And we've got to start asking them now, and that's, that's what the poll uh, really tried to do. They are big questions. We, it's, uh, it's going to be a whole strange world. And then on the horizon here, you have the big uh, Earth Transformation Conference in Hawaii, May 11th to the 13th. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, basically, the goal with that conference was to bring together these different disciplines that have been 
independently working on areas that are really linked together. So, for example, we have the new science and technologies field. Now, those of us that um, are familiar with the extraterrestrial phenomenon know that uh, some of these technologies involve anti-gravity and free energy principles. And so with the new science people, the um, alternative technologies, um, many of them have been able to develop uh, just through their own kind of uh, scientific brilliance or whether it's because they're being inspired or assisted by extraterrestrials, we're not quite sure, you know, was Tesla, for example, an extraterrestrial or were extraterrestrials talking to him? I mean, he actually did say uh, that he did have communications with extraterrestrials. So these are these are one of the things that uh, do come up, that there's a link between the extraterrestrial phenomena and these new sciences and technologies. And so what we want to do at this conference is present these issues and, and develop the links, build bridges here. And that's what we plan to do. And for example, we have uh, one of the presenters is Ralph Ring, who says that he was one of the pilots on the successful test of uh, a teleportation spacecraft that was developed using principles that were uh, first taught by Nikola Tesla. And that in 1960, uh, the coordinator or the director of that project and his uh, whole team were basically raided by the FBI and other government agencies who shut them down and stopped that project dead in its track and prosecuted Otis Carr, who was the director, and, and basically debriefed everyone else to, to remain silent for over 45 years, 46 years now. And so these are some of the things we'll be looking at at the conference, is, is trying to tie together all these disparate fields, and because ultimately uh, this is all one major endeavour to really transform the earth, transform the way we think, the way we perceive government, the way we uh, um, develop these technologies and uh, think up our new scientific principles and to come up with a kind of more spiritual or more uh, harmonious approach to life on the planet. There you go. And the website for that is www.earthtransformation.com. You can find out more information on the big conference there. And, and aside from the Big Earth Transformation Conference in Hawaii in May, uh, what else is coming up? Anything coming up on the horizon that you want to you plug here? Well, um, the, the Earth Transformation uh, Conference is, is the big one. Um, the uh, Exopolitics Journal uh, will be coming out with another edition in, in July, and so if people want to write up anything that they have in mind concerning exopolitics, uh, we're looking for quality submissions, so to do that. And we're also looking for ideas on... Uh, projects for the Exopolitics Institute. So that's uh, something also to keep in mind. Awesome, awesome. Uh, well, Michael Sal, thanks for coming back on the show for this extended interview. Uh, we, I think we covered a lot of great stuff, and it was great to have a chance to speak with you at length without standing around in a, in a conference hall <laughs> as we've done our last two interviews. So it was good, good to get a chance just to sit down and talk to you. Uh, the website is exopolitics.org. I think you guys are doing some great stuff there at the website and with the exopolitical movement. I'm really a fan of the proactive, activist sort of approach to the UFO phenomenon. I agree with, with that attitude. And, and moving on beyond the, the nuts and bolts, is it real or not investigation, and sort of getting over that is, is really key. Exopolitics.org is the website. Thanks for coming back on the show, Michael. Aloha, Tim. Thanks for having me back. There you have it, folks. That does it for this week's edition of Vanilla America Audio. Big, big thanks to Dr. Michael Sala for coming on the show. You can find out more information on Dr. Sala and his work with Exopolitics at www.exopolitics.org, E-X-O-P-O-L-I-T-I-C-S.org. Check it out. 
Moving right along now, it's time for Banal of America Audio listener feedback. And this week's letter comes from someone billed only as BB. No hometown listed in just BB. Here's what BB has to say. I just wanted to say that I appreciate your effort in the face of adversity. Nothing says spring like opening day. I'm sure Jordan Maxwell would have something to say about the symbolism of the baseball diamond. Great days are coming. BB. There you go. That's what BB has to say. Short and sweet and to the point, and I appreciate the kudos from BB. And he or she raises an important issue that I want to bring up. If you skipped over the BOA Audio Baseball Special, you are missing out. you got to go back and check this out. It is full of esoteric material. It's not just baseball discussion. We've got a lot of good feedback on this, but I'm a little afraid, and I want to make sure that those of you who are still on the fence, you got to go back and check it out. I'm telling you, it rocked big time. Thank you so much for the feedback, BB. I appreciate it. Stay tuned. You never know when we're going to pull a surprise like that again. And I definitely would love to do another baseball special next year. If you would like to be a part of Banal of America Audio listener feedback, there are a couple of ways to go about doing it. Either go to banalofamerica.com, click the contact button in the top right-hand corner of the screen. That will bring you to the page with the contact information. Or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. Either one of those methods puts your correspondence on the road to BOA Audio listener feedback. I should change up the routine here at the end of the program, but we'll see what happens. It's time now, of course, for the thanks to the great banalofamerica.com staff. Leslie, Chiron, Arlie, Jovi, Ralph Molesworth, and Tina Senna. They are putting out amazing columns at banalofamerica.com. This is not a one-man show. It is a think tank of esoteric proportions. As we've said, week in, week out here on BOA Audio, if you're only listening to the podcast, you're only getting half the story. Check out the columns at banalofamerica.com. And big thanks to the staff of BOA for your help and support with the audio series and the website banalofamerica.com, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. Also, we mentioned it last week at the end of the program, but I wanted to update because I actually got my hands on a copy of the magazine this week. Congratulations and kudos again to BOA's Leslie and R. Lee, the two newest columnists at UFO Magazine. I picked it up yesterday at my local Barnes & Noble, flipped to page 7, There's Leslie in UFO magazines, like a paradigm shift, and then halfway down the page, banalofamerica.com, page 7 of UFO magazine. There we are. Very, very cool. I just couldn't believe it when I saw it. So big thanks to Leslie for including us in her debut column in UFO magazine. Check it out at an esoterically friendly bookstore or newsstand near you. And in turn, also, I guess I should say... Welcome to all the great UFO Magazine readers who have discovered the program via the shout-out in UFO Magazine. Hope you dig the show. Hope you check out more of the episodes. Dip into the archive. We've got a ton of stuff here. And keep coming back for underground esoteric audio, as only BOA Audio can provide it. Speaking of which, if you are a long-time BOA Audio listener or an appreciative newcomer and you want to help support the audio series and the website, There's a way to go about doing that. You go to banalofamerica.com, 
you click the PayPal button, that'll put you on the road to making a donation to banalofamerica.com and BOA Audio. Those donations pay for the episodes. These phone calls are expensive, long distance. Last week we had a two-hour interview with Tony Healy in Australia. The bill for that, you don't even want to know, friends. You just don't want to know. But we rely on the donations of BOA Audio listeners like you. So if you can help us out, click the PayPal button at banalofamerica.com and make a donation. It would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, we're going to get conspiratorial with Kent Daniel Bentkowski of the Controversy Papers. Kent Daniel Bentkowski, or KDB as I like to call him, has really made a name for himself on the internet over the past few years. He is a prolific blogger of the conspiracy realm. You could almost call him a conspiracy pundit. He'll be on the program next week to talk about all things conspiracy. The 2008 election, what's going on there? false flag terrorism, the microchip agenda, the globalism agenda, plus we're going to have an extended conversation on esoteric messages hidden in mainstream movies that is just a wild ride and a fascinating discussion. That's going to be next week on the program. Come on by the website next week for the preview. We missed out on the Dr. Michael Sala preview. I apologize humbly for that. We're going to get to it, I swear, but the KDV preview is already... 99% done, so we know it will be available at BOA on Friday. And on that note, I've got nothing left to say, folks, so we close it out for one more week. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, Kent Daniel Bankowski. Until you hear from me then, this is Tim Benall, signing off.